0: Hi everyone, welcome to Double Canopy. Today we have Dr. Nina Bassick. She is recognized as one of the world's leading authorities on urban plants, especially trees, and just this year retiring from her directorship at the Urban Horticulture Institute, which she founded in 1980. Dr. Nina Bassick, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you. You're in New York, it's three hours ahead. It's lunchtime.
1: Yeah, I'm fine with that. <laughs>
0: okay, I'm seeing a lot of green trees behind you, so it hasn't turned yet.
1: Uh, a few things are turning, but uh, the ones I have in back of my <laughs> head there are still quite green.
0: Uh, when did they start turning? In well, mid, they, mid-October? They start,
1: there's a few that are going now, just starting, but it'll be mid-October before they're okay. in full flight. Yeah.
0: I've only been to New York once and it was in May, so yeah. everything was green and huge yeah. at that point. Yeah. What inspired you early on to study horticulture?
1: Well, I was thinking about this, and um, I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York, a very urban place, and I always appreciated the trees and plants that I saw there, but I really became interested in, I had like a postage stamp garden or place, and I was trying to think of plants that I could grow there and uh, would go and find plants and try plants and grow seeds and uh, this really, became a kind of passion for me to see what I could grow. I also got really interested in what I call kitchen horticulture, which is taking avocados or uh, sweet potatoes, (laughs) uh, carrot tops, and growing them in, in water, which I used to do all the time. And I just became really interested in this area because I think was very urban and I appreciated the plants and I also used to try things out uh and it was really like a visceral love of seeing things to grow seeing things growing I really loved to see plants growing I tried everything seeds and it wasn't because of a family uh, influence Uh, my parents were not horticulturally inclined they appreciated but uh, it was something I just started to do
0: Hmm. that's interesting um my brother was the naturalist in our family and he remembers all the species names to this day. I, it's not a talent of mine at all. So uh, I have a general interest in conservation and environmentalism, but he's the naturalist and I can't really trace it uh, to someone else in our family. He just picked it up on his own.
1: Yeah. It's interesting how, I mean, I started getting catalogs and growing seeds and putting lights in my house in a place where I could grow things under lights. And uh, yeah it was just a passion from quite a young age
0: and your parents uh, supported you
1: Yeah they were pleased that I was involved in this and but that was you know that was always an interest but my focus career focus was music I was a musician I went to the public high school of music and art and I, my first year of college was in conservatory music Oh interesting uh, although plants were always a you know a hobby that's something I was growing up but but music was always a profession until I went through my freshman year and I decided I didn't want to practice 12 hours a day <laughs> and, I, and I was 17 and I didn't really know if that was the right career choice so I took a year off and then I said really what I want to do is work with plants so I transferred to Cornell University as an undergrad and I graduated three years later okay a bachelor of science.
0: so you're at Cornell and I uh, you studied overseas too right
1: Right, I did my PhD in England.
0: Okay, okay, and uh, who are some of your early mentors?
1: One of my earliest mentors was uh, my advisor at Cornell, Harold Tukey was uh, my advisor, and uh, I found him really great person to talk to. He would, you know, I'd sit down in his office and we'd talk plants or whatever, um, and uh, he was a big influence.
0: And was he or you focused at that time on urban horticulture?
1: No, it was just plants and propagation. Plant propagation was my first focus, and he was a propagator. And so that's where I first went. And there was no urban horticulture field in 1975 or (laughs) Mm -hmm. whatever. Well, I graduated in 74, so it was, you know, 72, 71. There was no field of that.
0: Okay, so you graduated and uh, it was 74 74, and then... I think uh, Urban Horticulture Institute was, you started in 1980.
1: 1980. So I was five and a half years in England doing my PhD.
0: Okay. Uh, What unaddressed problems did you see then? And how does the Urban Horticulture Institute attempt to resolve them? You saw a need for something like what you created. How did that arise?
1: Well, it's interesting because actually it was governmentally mandated that there be an urban horticulture program at Cornell. And I was hired, I had an urban background, I thought a lot about trees and cities, but my Ph.D. was not on that. But when I got to the job, I think, well, what's the biggest influence I could have on people's environment and well-being? And instead of working in private gardens and so on, I decided to work with street trees, which is, the, of course, the most democratically public part of uh, horticulture. I knew when I walked down a, sh- a street with lots of big trees versus a hot, dry place with nothing, it made a difference. And so I decided to work with, with trees, and the Urban Horticulture Institute was basically founded to look at the physiological problems of trees in urban areas, figure out what the problems were, how can we address them in a, in a general way.
0: Mm-hmm. So you said that there wasn't really any organized focus on urban horticulture prior to the 70s, but it makes me wonder about old cities like Paris or even older around I mean, there, Europe. There,
1: were, there are. I mean, there are places where tree planting was. It didn't start in the 1980s. I mean, it, would, it was hundreds of years before that, and there mm-hmm. were... Uh, different historical impl- influences to change the way cities looked. I mean, especially in Paris or in Italy, uh, there were grand alleys of plants that were impressive and still are in some places, uh, which were in parts of the urban design movement at that time, not so much as a horticultural basis, but looking at urban design and grand boulevards and streets and so on.
0: So, uh, what, was, what was the first thing you guys started doing in
1: 1980? Well, I first uh, took a look around. <laughs> and the first six months was kind of going out and meeting people, talking to people, seeing what they thought of being as a problem, and I got all kinds of responses from that but it helped me get a sense of where I saw the problems in the urban horticulture institute and in the really downtown area so mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking of you know big suburban tracts where there's lots of soil and plants grew fine it was really the downtown areas
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it became apparent that uh, plants were under <laughs> assault from uh, heat and mostly heat and drought and compacted soil and they were kind of shoehorned into these little boxes in the streets and they didn't last very long. They didn't live very long.
0: Yeah, I I saw uh, one of the pictures you had of a very shallow root system. It looked like a pancake, basically. Um, Was that the majority of the trees that you would see?
1: Well, trees that are surrounded by pavement uh, or asphalt or any kind of pavement, concrete, the soil beneath that pavement has to be compacted, has to be compacted. Right. Meet engineering standards so that the pavement is not going to subside, or to fail. Mm-hmm. And so, being that requirement, then you you know carve out this box and put the tree ball in it. The tree roots can actually cannot access that soil. So they, if they get out at all, they go very shallow into that what's called a base course under the pavement, which is kind of gravel. Mm-hmm. And if they can get out, they just very shallow. And mm-hmm. then typically four inches. Would be a lot
0: that's a yeah not enough so would you see a lot of uh i imagine trees just didn't live as long in a situation like that they would fail i mean
1: it's sometimes tree roots can make a break (laughs) and and get into somebody's front yard or a leftover green space or soil area or they get into a sewer or they can make a break for it. In those cases, the trees can get pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, where their roots are relegated to be in that very shallow area or just in that box that they were planted in, they live for very short times. I mean, there have been estimates anywhere from you know 15 years to maybe 30 years. But saying that they're alive doesn't mean that they're thriving, doesn't mean that they look great. That means that they're alive. I mean, there's parts of them and they're alive. So plants are not like animals, they live and die cell by cell. You can have part of them that's dead, and part of them that's alive.
0: We had, uh, I'm in Alameda next to Oakland. And I think it was a year after we moved here, the famous uh, downtown Boulevard, Park Street. I don't know the, the issue inside and out, but they claimed that uh, the tree roots were taking over the pipes and electrical mm-hmm. yeah. wires that were running up and down the street. And these were gorgeous trees and sort of Gave the street its identity. I mean, really, just this beautiful yeah. canopy yeah. over the sidewalks, and then they did it over the weekend, and it was right. Friday. Friday to Monday, it was a completely different place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you do? You, I mean, that that has to happen quite often. Well,
1: people don't necessarily um, see the trees until something terrible like that happens. Yeah, <laughs> it's happened many times. Yeah, um, and they often do it on a weekend. Yeah. Um or over vacation or you know holiday time Mm -hmm. so i mean there's one thing about trees in the above ground infrastructure wires and but below ground it's also can happen but we can actually plant trees so that they're not going to be growing into sewers or pipes and so on it's just the way you know what the infrastructure is before you plant doesn't mean we don't plant where there's pipes but you can but also the the infrastructure is getting better I mean, there's some old infrastructure which had light, lots of leaks. The plants would, roots would seek those out. Mm-hmm. But with, with the infrastructure getting better, it's less likely to happen. You know, there are conflicts between the built landscape and trees that we try to avoid.
0: Yeah. So the uh, above ground in the canopy, we, you see uh, crews cut out holes yeah. in the canopy to make way for the wires. Does that, does that really harm the tree or is, do they sort of uh, adapt and move on?
1: Well, it's a big hit when you take, it depends how much is taken out. It's a big hit because the, the canopy is where plants make food. And when you have the food source taken away, other parts start to, the root growth stops. Uh, the plants don't have as much defenses against disease and insects and uh, it can be done well. That kind of reduction pruning can be done well or can be done poorly. And that's a skillful arborist type of uh, techniques. And how you cut, where you cut is all important until if it works or not.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, you guys developed some practices at the UHI. Scoop and dump is one of them. Yeah. What is that?
1: Uh, scoop and dump? Well, we first of all, we, we realized that not only under pavement, but in areas that had development or construction or cars and trucks and trailers and machinery. During development, they, those, after those uh, machines uh, went away, the soil would be really compacted. And then very oftentimes, someone would ask, well, can you now put a garden there? Can you develop a landscape? And so, you know, the soil was like a brick and we knew we had to do something. So in the late nineties, we started doing this technique called scoop and dump um, basically, where we would put compost, about four to six inches of compost, on the compacted surface. And then, with a the backhoe, we'd come and dig down like 18 inches, and with the compost and the compacted soil, lift it up in the air and then dump it. So, scoop and dump. And we'd get veins of compost through this cloddy, compacted soil. How, how deep right would you go? 18 inches. 18 inches. It could be 15 to 24, but approximately 18 inches with a big bucket of a truck.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we'd scoop and then dump it, and we'd get these veins of compost through the cloudy soil. And we'd plant right in that, and then we mulch the surface. And we've, we did this for many, many years, and we still do it. But I had a student who I asked to, let's look at what happened over 13 years of doing this and we did a study looking at uh, what happened to the soil. The plants were growing well, but we wanted to look at the soil predominantly, and we found that over time, the soil actually improved. We think that, well, if you scoop and dump it, it's probably best right away, and then maybe it doesn't get, good influence goes away after a while, but we found the soil actually got better over time, and uh, that was interesting to us, And we you know, basically we were encouraging microorganisms, we were increasing the organic matter, we were basically bringing life back into the soil and-
0: um, And compost was the only amendment?
1: Compost was the only amendment, but a lot of it. It wasn't like a sprinkling, it was six inches of it.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. After we planted and mulched it, we would mulch it every year to increase the organic matter until we have what's called canopy closure, where the, the shrubs or tree leaves are touching each other. Mm-hmm. And then when they drop their leaves, that also increases organic matter. So many people have said that if you increase, add so much organic matter, which is maybe a third by volume initially, that will, you know, subside, it'll be eaten, it'll be go away, and you'll have subsidence. Well, we never found that to be the case, because we were increasing the organic matter every year, until mm-hmm. the landscapes could maintain the organic matter with leaf, leaf litter.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's a uh, life cycle that happens with the microbes where they eat dead microbes after, you know, that cycle is completed and they just it sort of cycles through and builds up over time. I wonder, from a municipal perspective, is it tough to convince people In the public and in you know government that just letting the litter fall and stay there is that is that hard to convince people
1: it's it's an aesthetic so i i am not proposing to leave leaves on grass on turf because that does smother it and it's not healthy but in landscape beds where you have not just tree pits which is not this is not meant for tree pits this is meant for landscape beds in uh, larger areas, uh, there's no reason why the uh, leaf litter cannot stay in there.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: People have asked me this, people have asked me, well, aren't you building up fungal diseases and bacteria? I said, well, that's perfectly fine and we we want the fungi and Mm -hmm. good bacteria to be there and the microorganisms, they're doing the heavy lifting, in fact, in terms of making the soil uh, aggregation and structure better.
0: So another thing you developed was CU Structural Soil. What does CU stand for?
1: Cornell University. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> and did you you're guys... Not supposed,
1: you're not supposed to say Cornell when you have a product, you know. Okay. But CU is okay.
0: Okay, CU. Um, yeah. And did you guys develop this concept or was it built on some somebody else's idea?
1: This is when the, in the mid-90s we realized that... We needed more soil volume to allow trees to grow to their envisioned design size, and we weren't able to get that in normal sidewalk situations. So CU soil was developed to be able to be laid under pavement and to meet engineering specifications for load-bearing, yet still allow tree roots to access this, not like the pancakes roots that we see in normal street situations. It was influenced by the way that turf, soil for turf, for golf courses, are, is uh, is designed so that it's compaction resistant. But this is sand. When you're talking about golf courses, you're talking about sandy soils. But when when we're talking about trees, we wanted larger roots, bigger volume. So we use a a gravel and soil mixture that the gravel would be uh, load bearing. We'd have each piece of gravel touching each other. So you could, it wouldn't be compressible. Mm -hmm. And in the large pores between the gravel, we would have soil that wouldn't be compacted and roots could just penetrate through that. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of a gravel soil mixture with CU soil. And that's, we did a lot of work on figuring out what we needed to do, what size gravel, what type of soil, uh, how to do it, how deep, how, what would, you know, we had to look at the results and it took many years and uh, Mm And it's now out there. But it's only meant to be for under pavement. And some people get excited and say, oh, I'm going to put it everywhere. Because it's a compromise between the engineers who need that load bearing and the trees who need the soil. So right. it's not as, uh, not a, it doesn't have as much moisture as we'd like if it was a normal soil. Mm-hmm. So what trees you choose are important.
0: And so scoop and dump is for uh, situations where you can't do that, you can't right. change what's under the sidewalk and then CU structural soil is for when you're actually laying a whole new uh, pavement, sidewalk, uh, city planning.
1: Right, I mean, sometimes it's retrofitted too. I mean, there's also, mm-hmm. we've developed a way that you can create a breakout zone. Let's say if you have a sidewalk next to you know a, a green space, could be a churchyard or house or whatever where there's green space, and you take out a couple of flags of the concrete uh, and to create a safe passage for roots into somebody else's front yard, that's another way of doing it where you don't have to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Breakout zones.
0: Okay. And uh, you said you were you were testing this in the 90s? Yeah. Okay. And... and it,
1: was, it was patented by Cornell in uh, 98.
0: Okay. So. When was the first real urban use of this?
1: Oh, this is, uh, we did it in Ithaca, New York, where I, I live and where Cornell is, is uh, we did a, we use the downtown Ithaca as a lot of testing area, and so with a cooperation with a great city forester, we laid a big street of this with structural soil in 1997, and it's still there. We had, it's actually all over Ithaca. You, no one knows it's there; you don't see it, but I know where it is,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs>
1: and I can uh, I can test the trees and I can measure how the trees are doing in in the various uh, installations. We also did it in research fields where we built sidewalks to nowhere and we actually created, simulated urban streets in a research area where we could do other kinds of measurements. Mm
0: -hmm. So everyone has seen roots displacing sidewalk slabs. Do do you see that often with the structural soil?
1: Well, you know, the reason why, we we talked about pancake roots, roots at the surface. Well, roots grow, but they also grow radially, you know, Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, right? They grow radially. Mm -hmm. And uh, as they do that, they push the sidewalk up. And that's because they're at the surface, at that four inches or so. Mm -hmm. And they do taper down uh, further away they get from the original trunk. But it's those first uh, four feet or so from the trunk that the major damage occurs. And we did some experiments in Ithaca, so far so good where we planted trees in narrow tree lawns or green strips between the sidewalk and the curb. And we took that breakout zone of the sidewalk and we put structural soil down there. And what happens when roots hit structural soil, they grow to the full depth of the structural soil. So we put like 30 inches of structural soil and the roots, when they hit that, they go down and then across into somebody's front yard. So they don't stay at the surface that Uh, you would expect with normal tree planting and so we have some of these experiments up and after eight years we haven't had any sidewalk heaving what we also did of course as a scientist you do the control where you plant the same trees without that and we are seeing some sidewalk lifting but it takes time to see this sure Uh, that's the nature of tree work it Mm -hmm. doesn't happen overnight Mm
0: -hmm. yeah so you said you know where all those sites are in Ithaca how often do you go survey them? And do you guys have um, a program to do long-term studies of this stuff?
1: Well, there's some that I do long-term studies. There's one um, parking lot where I have trees planted in structural soil with porous or non-porous asphalt on top. And they do study those and I've written papers about those. And the way we look at roots, uh, because cities don't like you to Dig everything up. When you we actually use ground penetrating radar to look and see where the roots are and the number of roots and, and the depth and the density of roots. And so we've done that, uh, which is a great tool to measure, to look at roots uh, on the ground. You problems.
0: can do that through uh, Sidewalk Slabs?
1: Yeah, you can do it through anything Okay. Sure. There's a program that basically, you know, ground-penetrating radar has been used for many things, mm-hmm. uh, archaeological and metal and all kinds of things, but there's a program that looks at roots, which is basically tubes of water, uh, mm-hmm. and we put it through that program, and they can, we can look at where the roots are.
0: Great. Yeah. I understand that uh, there's quite a few sites around the country using the CU Structural Soil, how uh, how many, number one, and number two, how did you get the word out?
1: Well, I mean, I, I feel very strongly about getting the word out. So uh, my, my work is I do teaching, I do ex- research, and I do extension, which is getting the word out. And so, um, first of all, in terms of number, I think it's about 2,500 uh, installations in every state and in the provinces of Canada, Puerto Rico. There are some... Uh, installations in the UK, uh, Israel. Uh, there are some different ones in Scandinavia where they use the same principle but bigger stones. So it's definitely uh, out there. Getting the word out is I give lots of talks. I have a website where I have all kinds of user-friendly documents. Not I, I write the, the journal papers for a refereed audience, but I also do translate that into practitioner types of bulletins and so on. So it's always there, it's free. Mm -hmm. And I give a lot of talks. I was just looking up how many talks I've given uh, in the last uh, several years, and it's somewhere around 550 talks. I mean, I think it's important. I mean, I have the website and that's great, but, um, and you can Google all this stuff and find my website, but people like to talk to you.
2: Mm -hmm. Sure.
1: They like to hear it, uh, you know, to face instead of reading things and uh, they can ask questions and it's a different different way of teaching so i think yeah. that uh, giving talks and i've given a lot of them um has been useful
0: yeah that's what i like about podcasts it's a, it's a, it's like half a lecture and half just you know chat and yeah talking yeah. it's it's a great way to learn um, is there a particular or a number of conferences that city planners and park managers, uh, urban planning people, go to? Is is that where you're? Yeah,
1: there's, there well, there's definitely uh, there's an International uh, Society of Arboriculture, which is uh, international, and uh, people go to that. But for lo- on a local state, there are mostly every state has an urban forestry council, and New York does. I mean, all every state and uh, does and they also put on annual conferences mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, that's generally where the word mm-hmm. gets out.
0: Okay, raises a question. I just wonder about even the, the, my city. You know how you know the, all the planning that goes on for every single project in the city. You know, right. are are they getting the best practices, the current up to date stuff? Well, I mean, stuff?
1: hopefully there would be people in the forestry area of your city that would be. Uh, talking to the planners <laughs> so that they can get, you know, it's, you know, urban planning, urban forestry, urban horticulture is, is a multidisciplinary.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so it really is good to get all those people on the, ta- around the table.
0: Mm-hmm. I noticed on, uh, first of all, I watched a number of your talks and they're terrific, but on one of the talks I saw, uh, let's see, neon tree tags. Yeah. Uh-huh. They were
1: just just chartreuse colored.
0: (laughs) Chartreuse. Uh, I'm trying to remember um, what the it was the was the species of the tree on there.
1: Yeah, there was it was basically it was a U.S. Forest Service USDA Forest Service program called Mm iTree, which you can put in the species where you are depending on the region of the of the country, you can put in the species and the diameter DBH. And you can get a value of the stormwater, pollution resistance, I mean, pollution, amelioration, uh, carbon sequestration. It basically gives you all these environmental economic values for the tree of that size in your area. Mm -hmm. And so we made these tree tags, like, you know, like, you know, cost of a tree or whatever. If you go into the shop, we say this tree uh, gives you, and we did it over 25 years, so much... In terms of monetary value, for these environmental and economic benefits, as a consciousness-raising thing, so I had my students do them, calculate the, the, do the calculations, and then we did the posters and we put them on, maybe fifty or sixty trees, and it it just makes people think in a different way that these trees are. Yes, they. There's a cost to planting them and maintaining them, but there's much more benefit of what you get from them. Absolutely. Uh, and it, it goes beyond the environmental and the economic, it goes beyond the aesthetic, it goes the mental issues, and those are not quantified. Right. But the, just like you said, when your, all those trees came down, it was like, I have a different city, you know?
0: Oh, everybody was so <coughs> angry. They were Everybody yeah. was really upset. Yeah,
1: and it, they weren't thinking about the cooling. They were no. thinking about, this just made my city different.
2: Right, yeah.
1: Um, so there's a lot of value, and there And it's useful when you're trying to talk to uh, legislators or uh, anybody who's got the purse strings in your city to say, well, these trees are providing value. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're planting, you're spending a dollar, but you're getting five dollars back in value. And that, you know, perks your head up and say, okay, well, maybe we should throw a bit more money at these trees instead of just seeing them as a. A cost mm-hmm. seeing the benefits.
0: So you said you only uh, did sixty of these chartreuse tags. Oh, every
1: year, every year. Oh,
0: every year. Okay. And was it in just in New York? Well,
1: it was just on Cornell campus. Okay. Um, and we did a, some downtown Ithaca as well. Okay. But uh, yeah.
0: And what was the response? Did people like seeing those well,
1: tags? Well, I was saying, I watched people would just get there and read them, and <laughs> and uh, I didn't really, you know. Whole everybody did. What do you think about these? But mm-hmm. uh, I always saw people reading them, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, if one person, you know, changes their mind about or gets, you know, consciousness raised, that's good.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it's a great idea. I would love to see it. I don't think I've ever, ever have seen it. Um, and now with QR codes, you could just, you know, scan something and and get all that information or more. Oh right. Um,
1: and the the iTree program uh, enables you to, you know, do it on existing trees. It also enables you to plant a tree and see what it's going to do over time. Mm-hmm. So there's it's it's a neat program and one that uh, a lot of cities are playing around with.
0: Yeah, my city, I mean, like a lot of cities, has declared a climate emergency, mm-hmm. and I wonder, looking at that information from the USDA Forest Service. Was it just the Forest Service or was it are there?
1: Yeah, it's a USDA Forest Service, but it's a small I, big T-R-E-E,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is the program. Okay. And there are many suites of uh, ways that you can use that iTree data. And we did the uh, iTree design data, which we were looking, that was a particular suite we were looking at.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
2: just... So I...
1: you can get a lot of information. And also in terms of cooling, which is a big deal everywhere in yeah, urban areas... Yeah. The urban heat island has been around for as long as there's been cities, but now it's exacerbated by climate change. So the amount of cooling you can get from big trees is really significant.
0: Mm-hmm. And did you guys contribute any science to those tools, like the iTree design tool?
1: No, no, that was not.
0: So they, it's just a government program? and
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the USDA program, uh, Forest Service, is more looking at the benefits of trees. And I look, my way of dealing with Urban Trees is looking at how we can get the trees to grow.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. right. <laughs> so, uh,
1: I mean, there's a, they're assuming, yes, you have a tree, it's growing, it's this big, and you get these benefits. But I'm saying, well, how can we get them to be that big to get the benefits? In, which case, in many cases, they're not at the sizes we would like them to give the benefits provided.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, we already talked a little bit about how urban planners uh, find and absorb your work. I'm, I'm, I take it you've done a ton of consulting on municipal projects?
1: Well, I, I do, the, for my extension role, I do work with individual cities and so on, but that's part of my role in extension of getting the word out. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, I would consult for different, you know, different states and so on, but if I'm in New York state, that's just what I do as part of my job. Mm-hmm. And yes, I work with a lot of landscape architects are my big audience planners, city foresters, arborists, nursery professionals. These are all the professions that I Mm -hmm. I work
0: with. And do you you, um, find that they are pulling you in at the appropriate stage of planning Um, at the beginning?
1: Often it's it's a little bit late. Often things Mm -hmm. are going ahead. And they come in at this point and say, well, wait a minute, we may have Let's change. Let's look at the soil here or before we get the plants in the ground. And sometimes it's a little late. But so we're, you know, I teach. I've been teaching for 42 years, and so all those students who've gone through know what they should do. And all the people I talk to say, you know, you've got to do things right at the beginning. That's really the key: is doing things right at the beginning, and then you have less problems later on. And it's did- trying to play catch up when the, everything is on the ground and done the wrong way. And yeah, it'll live for a while, but it won't do what you want it to do. And to play catch up at that point, uh, or to give a ton of resources, uh, it's not gonna happen.
0: Mm -hmm. And do most of your students go into those fields, uh, city planning, urban forestry?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, primarily the landscape architecture field, Mm -hmm. uh, urban forestry, botanic gardens. um,
0: You've had a lot of students over the years. Yes. I wonder, what their motivation to get into this field was when they were young?
1: People have a love of plants and just enjoy seeing them grow and then they they can be uh, focused on doing good for people. Uh, It becomes a more heightened uh, response as opposed to, I like plants, I like to see them grow, I like to try different things, and now I can work in a way that's gonna help a lot of people, that Mm -hmm. that makes it better.
0: Mm -hmm. So this goes back to our previous talk. So what has been your experience interfacing with city planners and actually getting plans implemented? Someone like yourself is more like a consultant for projects that are already in motion. Well, Um,
1: sometimes you get involved in the early stages, uh, which is good, or sometimes you get called in before things are already underway, or they know they want to do this, but can we make it better? mm -hmm. So there's been various different places where I come in.
0: Do you find that people are generally receptive to you? Yeah, and, and I had impla- to learn
1: to, for, for, for the city engineers and the people in public works are often uh, more difficult not to crack. Um, I had to learn to speak their their vocabulary, mm-hmm. speak engineering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I learned to do that, especially with structural soil, which was definitely an engineer aspect of that. And we work with engineers at Cornell who taught me how to, evaluate the effects of structural soil in engineering terms not just in horticultural terms
0: load bearing and all of that oh yeah load bearing
1: <laughs> and you know
0: is your load Dr.
1: density and you know california bearing ratio and all kinds of things that we use to measure the strength and load bearing mm-hmm. so it's not just saying it's load bearing you have to prove it it mm-hmm. is so so i use i work with engineers to do that that's what it took quite a few years to do that, mm-hmm. working with a graduate student, uh, Jason Grabowski, who is now at Rutgers, but he was the primary graduate student who did this work. And that's, I should say that, I mean, it's, without graduate students, nothing gets done.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> you need the students to do the, the work.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your SWAT team?
1: Oh, SWAT was um, an idea, it was called the Student Weekend Arborist Team. Students who had taken my classes and knew the trees, they knew the idea. Uh, we would go into small communities, which didn't have the f- resources to hire a consulting firm to do a tree inventory. And in the space of a weekend, we would do the entire tree inventory. I have maybe 16 students working in pairs, and we had uh, handheld computers that we would take the data on. Uh, basically, took the data on trees and took the data on spaces, plantable spaces for these small communities, and we would finish it in a weekend, as I said, and we develop a master, basically a forestry plan. They could see what the data was, what the species were, what was doing well, what needed work, what needed a lot of work, and then come up with ideas that they may suggest to what they could do to improve their their urban forest. We did this for 60 communities. Oh, wow. And, and, but they were small. They were not like New York City, much mm-hmm. bigger. But yeah. Um, they were small uh, small communities that just didn't have the resources or to think about an urban forestry plan. And so we took the data and then we did the plan. At first, we just took, took the data and gave it to them on an Excel sheet and they said, what's this? Yeah, so sure. we, we had to actually create a master plan for them, which they could take or leave, mm-hmm. but at least give them a place to start thinking about.
0: And who was the point person on these projects in the community?
1: Uh we would always work with somebody It would have to be either tree commission or a department of Public works person we would they would contact us primarily and we would work with them so there had to be a connection point and then going to the whatever the governmental body in that town or village to present the data to them as well
0: hmm like at a city council meeting yeah mm-hmm. And were you ever working with a like a local um, landscape design or? Yeah, landscape
1: like a, design. Basically, many landscape architects or landscape designers I've worked with or they still call me or email me about with questions. And but I, on, on
0: the SWAT team project?
1: Oh, the SWAT team. There might have been a, a landscape designer in that planning group. But maybe I'm, I'm maybe just not. thinking
0: of how how a city or a community can then take what you've given them and then...
1: It would typically be a, a city forester or a Department of Public Works person who okay. would implement the changes. But first, so the city planning board or whatever would have to allocate money mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. plant trees.
0: So the SWAT team was a volunteer effort. Yeah. Was... Actually, they,
1: they, they did make a little money. We asked the communities to pay the students like $100 a day and they were happy to do it
0: okay
2: I
1: mean, this is it's like jump change uh, yeah yeah and uh, they got a lot of value out of that and then they can make the decision whether to put some money toward this effort
0: right I like it that's a good model do you know yeah, if anybody I
1: mean, we, we, wrote a, we wrote a paper about this and uh, you know so other people can use the model but uh, and there's a there's a website link to my website about it but after 14 years of doing this uh, we sort of ran out of communities
2: oh.
1: <laughs> in, in in the local area sure. here. I mean, we, you know, it's really hard to take people and then do overnight. and mm-hmm. you know, So we were trying to do places we can go within a, sort of an hour or two radius of driving to when you're mm-hmm. taking 16 people. We did do some further afield, but it was a much more intense uh, effort.
0: Yeah, going farther distances. Well, running out of communities, that's a good problem.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good problem to
2: have, yeah.
0: I think you you mentioned it, and I looked it up. And this is a fascinating program in New York City, the the Million Trees Initiative. Yeah. And were you or the Urban Horticulture Institute involved in that at all?
1: Well, there was a, initially there were meetings of all kinds of uh, experts who came together to talk about the Million Trees effort. I remember just maybe, hundred of us in a room. <laughs> Talking yeah. about what they should be doing. and I remember, Well, who, who
0: implemented it? Who started it?
1: Uh, well, it was an impetus of Mayor Bloomberg, who was at the time mayor of New York City, and his planning department. Um, and they
0: got Bette Midler to come on board.
1: Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Bette Midler to be. She was a great tree advocate.
0: Terrific.
1: Um, is a great tree advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they basically said, We need to plant a million trees. Uh, and it's not just street trees, it's trees and highway areas and public housing, it was trees, is wh- wherever they could get them.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: a significant number were in street trees. And I made the big pitch. I said, you can plant all these great trees, but what about the soil? What mm-hmm. about trying to improve the soil so that you can get the trees to uh, grow to your envisioned design size? And that was, well, they were, I mean, they said, well, we're going to, they did widen or enlarge the tree planting pits you saw the ones before were just like a like a four by four mm-hmm. now it's, it's five by ten at something
0: yeah was there uh, a bad reception to this idea of imp- no, improving just
1: the was soil there's a lot more money and a lot more involvement in terms of uh, retrofitting an existing sidewalk was difficult right although there's quite a few structural soil projects in new york city where there's new construction right we,
0: yeah well this the scoop and dump with a uh, you know a couple cubic feet of top uh, compost that's not yeah. too expensive is it
1: yeah but we're talking about if we're talking about street a million trees, trees yeah, yeah. Um, um well yeah scoop and dump I, I pitched that to central park in new york city they were interested but i never knew what came about that because it's not just street trees and the worst situation was tree pits but you could have parks that have been compacted and trees are struggling to get out and where you have the ability to use, to to remediate real soil as opposed to going through the compromise of structural soil. Right. That's always the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I've started doing that in street situations where you have a, a, we call a tree lawn between the sidewalk and the curb. It's a narrow area. And I started doing that here in Ithaca where some trees would get the scoop and dump Process for maybe ten feet on either side of the tree, and then you have the tree, and some wouldn't. And after three years, I've taken the data this year, and the ones with had the scoop and dump are significantly better.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, that's the first instance instance of a scoop and dump in a typical city tree lawn mm-hmm. situation. So I think it can be done as long as you have some area. It's not everything is not paved. Right. Everything is paved. You can't do that. But if you have some green area where the tree is planted, then I think the uh, scuba and dump was uh, perfectly fine
2: mm-hmm.
1: and easier.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, was the uh, Million Trees Initiative, was it a popular program?
1: Yeah, it was popular and it, it, they finished early. I think, I think they gave themselves, I'm not sure how many years, maybe eight years or six years. I'll, to do I'll it, but they finished early, and after they finished, they I think three years later they started to look and see what happened, and some of the street trees at least, and uh, it's unfortunate. That I was at least 30 percent of the trees were not there. And that was it. Wasn't like that they were dead, is <laughs> they were gone.
0: They were gone, and, uh, kidnapped.
1: Uh, kidnapped uh, or tree napped, and I don't know. I don't think they know what what happened.
0: Really? So do you think?
1: I mean, some were, some were dead. Some were died, and then they were taken away. Sure. But some. Uh, 30% is a lot. Of, <laughs> what? That's, a,
0: that's a lot of trees, 30% of a million.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, that was a street tree portion, which was not a million. Okay. It was all the other public housing and highways and so on, mm-hmm. parks. That was part of that.
0: I wonder, do you think it was people in the community that just didn't like what was there?
1: Yeah, there are those people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, they're going to drop leaves on my... Uh, front house they right there are people who don't like trees so really yeah
0: that's and like people uh, who don't like chocolate there's got to be a similar <laughs> yes. ratio in the population that's but you know uh,
1: in Ithaca for instance when they're gonna we started doing this door knocker thing where a tree is gonna go in we put a door knocker said you know you're about to get a new tree congratulations yeah Merry and, Christmas uh, if you have any questions call this number and most people like trees yeah But there's always a few who said, oh, you know, it's be messy, Hmm. I don't like it. Interesting. shade my vegetable garden. And then we also have uh, signs on trees that have to be removed, and that also gets people going. (laughs) Sometimes the trees are hazardous, they have to be removed. Uh, Especially really big trees, I mean, when they are really big and they start to get hazardous, people get upset because they see, you know, Trees like plants, like animals. I mean, if there's a dead part of it, well, it's not dead. The rest of it is looking green. Why do you have to take it out? So, but it becomes a structural issue.
0: Yeah. Trying to think, what's the biggest tree in Central Park? Oh, I don't know. Tree species?
1: Oh, numbers. Species? Mm hmm. Well, there's lots of species. Because I
0: keep wondering if we can't plant like redwoods here in our city. You know, what's the. The barrier to that I mean, might you be probably a, can a hazardous. You
1: are. I mean, you can plant. Well, you're, you're near Alameda? Mm hmm. Um, coastal sure coastal Redwood. Yeah, I mean. But, redwoods. you know,
0: if, if it fell over on a house or something, that would be catastrophic. Could be hazardous. I don't think hazardous. redwoods
1: fall down too much. No.
0: <laughs> I know, but, you know, 100 years from now.
1: I mean, right now, if you see in Florida with the hurricane, uh, trees going over, and they go over with a flat plate of roots. Mm hmm. You know, have you noticed that? Yeah. It's flat. So, if we can get roots further and deeper, not to I, say that roots go down that mirror image of the top of the tree, but they could go to three feet.
0: Did you see that in the news? if mean, uh, the,
1: the tree's going over? Yeah, today? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've seen it for several days. Oh, wow. And the trees go over and they have a flat root plate. Wow. Now, some trees like palms down in Florida, they're, they're adapted to that kind of condition. Mm-hmm. and They sort of bend with the wind. Hmm. But other trees, I mean, really old trees, I was looking at the live oaks, some live oaks, which have been there for hundreds of years going
2: over.
0: So um, I don't know uh, exactly how they did the Million Trees Initiative, but do you, can you see that happening in other places? other? It has
1: been. I mean, Philadelphia has one. Uh, I think Los Angeles has one. Uh, there are several places that are doing some number Chicago has one where they're trying to up the number of trees because it's a really benefit in terms of cooling the urban
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, core and especially in those cities those con, those areas that have been redlined in the past which uh, the legacy of redlining and reduction of infrastructure in those communities has made it hot You're right. and not a lot of trees have been planted so there's a Acknowledgement that really more has to be done, and especially community, communities that are economically disadvantaged and didn't have the, the resources that were uh, given to other communities.
0: And do you know if those projects are also spearheaded by you know, a celebrity face? Yeah. Uh, or if but, I'm just wondering how how to do it, how to as a model, how to do this in more places, even in small cities—not a million trees in a small city, but you know.
1: No, no, maybe maybe ten thousand. Sure. Whatever. Yeah. I would think that uh, celebrities would like to be involved with that, like mm-hmm. to be seen as being part of uh, environmental mm-hmm. solutions.
0: Yeah, yeah. Call them up. Yeah, call them up. <laughs> I don't have their numbers, but... <laughs> uh, were you guys involved with the Highline project at all?
1: I was uh, involved in one of the teams that was uh, uh, bidding for the Highline project. Okay. I was involved with landscape architects uh, as a free person to be on that committee and that it was a competition and we didn't get I mean my team didn't get it but it uh i'm very familiar with the high line which mm-hmm. is a really neat uh landscape because it's, it's a big window box so you can't think of it as a natural landscape it's you know it's you're familiar with it, it's a disused rail line above ground right and they put soil in there and plant it and it's great I mean, it's it's very popular. I, I love it when I walk on it, but I also see everybody dragging hoses everywhere. It's it's not a natural landscape. It's a highly engineered, highly maintained window box. Right. And it's great. So, it's great. Yeah. And there's a, a Friends of the High Line. These are volunteers who do much of this. So, I don't think the city is paying too much into it.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, so that
1: I'm not that, sure. I'm not sure who, but I know there's our friends of the High Line, right? Which are probably hauling the hoses around.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, because it's uh, to have an elevated garden costs a lot more. It's structurally a completely different kind of project. Oh thing. yeah,
1: I mean engineering, everything.
0: Yeah, it makes, I mean it's
1: very neat to be up in the in the you know two stories up with with plants, and, mm-hmm. and it's yeah, a very yeah. neat experience. And it's very popular, and it's actually. Uh, engendered a whole economic revival of that area because people come to the High Line they want to get food or want to buy clothes or whatever downstairs and um, it really changed the whole economic outlook of that area
0: Interesting We have one in San Francisco I'm trying to think of other places that have uh, elevated gardens like that Um, I did see a picture I haven't been on the High Line but I did see a picture of these um, tree wells that had slatted planks all around them the trunk was just coming out of these you know, little circle in this slatted planks. I mean, it's it's just interesting. It's like you said, highly designed, highly engineered, mm-hmm. kind of strange. The,
1: that kind of material is more valuable than the tree. The cost of the material is mm-hmm. much more than the cost of the tree. Mm-hmm. So if the tree doesn't well, do well, they just take it out, put another one in.
0: So Nina, what is the best tree?
1: Ah! No such thing, no such <laughs> thing. Um, it's about the tree that does well in that particular site. So, knowing the site, knowing the constraints or the opportunities of the site, knowing where you are, what the soil is, you know, doing that site assessment is key to choosing the right tree. But there are some really great trees that are, I think, the, the trees that uh, can tolerate drought and flooding are some of the best trees because they can tolerate a wide range of environmental conditions. And and some of the oaks can do that, particularly Swamp White Oak, which is a a terrific tree. And that was the tree I was involved with, the the 9-11 Memorial in New York City, where uh, there was a designer from California who came, and and I just wasn't as familiar with the trees in in the Northeast. And I suggested Swamp White Oak because it was a highly engineered site, uh, and they wanted big trees. Uh, And I suggested this, and they put them all. I said, don't just put one tree species. Let's have a, a diverse and no they just put all swamp white oaks hmm. and they're doing great but that's you know it's we had a lot of history in that we've overplanted certain species and then we get hit by a bug or disease mm-hmm. that takes them all out and that's not a you know sound way of planting
2: mm-hmm. uh, and a
0: diversity you of...
1: can have trees that look similar but are genetically diverse and that is you know a way to hedge your bets right so and, if, you know the oaks can do it, so, I mean, there's some other great trees that... And I have a woody plant database which people can search based on site conditions and find a whole bunch of woody mm-hmm. plants that mm-hmm. would do well.
0: Uh, you talk about porous asphalt, and I wonder... I've seen some demonstrations of different kinds of asphalt, and uh, some where the water just looks like it's just going straight through it. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. Where does the water go?
1: Well, you have to have a reservoir. You have to have some place for it to go. So if you put porous asphalt just on compacted soil, it wouldn't go anywhere. It mm-hmm. would pond up and right. uh, over. So when we put structural soil under porous asphalt, the infiltration rate is so high of sh- structural soil as well as porous asphalt, it goes, it fills up like a whole reservoir, like a cistern almost under the ground, mm-hmm. which is there. And then it goes below the structural soil into the whatever is there, mm-hmm. the fill uh, material, so you have to have a reservoir. You just can't put it onto regular old soil mm-hmm. and expect it to go anywhere. But uh, typically, where the trees are not involved, it's, it's it's laid on gravel, which has big pores and water goes through into the pores. But if you use structural soil, you can you have that as well as a a substrate for growing trees. Mm-hmm. So the thing about structural soil, the limitation is that it doesn't have as much water holding capacity as other soils. So we have to get water into the pavement somewhere or other, and porous asphalt does a good job.
0: Okay. And how many people are using that around the country, the porous asphalt?
1: It's becoming more, but um, it's not more expensive. But, what, but it is more expensive because the asphalt companies have to clean out one of their regular asphalt bays put in this new recipe of for porous asphalt and that unless there's a big project that uh, is cost effective for them then they they charge more money mm-hmm. and so for small i mean there had to be a pretty large big parking lot or big area that would be a, could bore the uh, bear the cost of that
0: mm-hmm. well how, how do you feel uh, are you you're officially retired now
1: i'm retired i'm emeritus so i still have research going on i mean things don't stop the day i retired sure so I have uh, works with, I have a whole bunch of hybrid oaks that I've been working with for 25 years and trying to get them out into the nursery trade, oaks that would tolerate a lot of different conditions. I'm looking at improving structural soil with biochar, looking at see whether oh, that makes a little, gives us a bit more water-holding capacity. Um, mm-hmm. So Yeah, the more,
0: more microbes in there, the more water-holding capacity. Well, oh, we have plenty
1: of microbes, it's just uh, the water we need, uh, we have mycorrhizae and structural soil. It just comes. I mean, the roots have mycorrhizae on them. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. Um, but we should but uh, what the the problem is uh, is the uh, water holding capacity. So if we could up the water holding capacity without losing the load bearing, that would be beneficial.
0: Do you have uh, speaking dates on the books?
1: I have a few. Uh, I'm going. Yeah, I have a few. I'm trying not to travel quite as far. I'm gonna travel locally. I mean. New Jersey or whatever, but uh, people wanted me to go to Saskatchewan. I said, eh. <laughs> I'll, I'll Zoom you, but I'm not going to go there.
0: Zoom is great. Have you ever done a conference great. with At Zoom?
1: Point, I mean, I had to do a year of teaching on Zoom when yeah, during yeah. the pandemic, and that was awful. Yeah. Was awful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And now we're doing podcasts on Zoom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Dr. Nina Basick, thank you so much for talking My with me idea. today. This has been very interesting and um, helpful. I'm very interested in how your knowledge can bleed into city projects, municipal projects at the That's appropriate the stage. You know, hopefully uh, we, we can see more of it. Thank yeah, you very much. thank you. I'm going to list your website and everything. Anything else you want to put on there? Uh, no,
1: you're not on Twitter. My whole, my whole life is in the website. So
0: Great. Just... Well, thank you. Take care. Yeah, take care. Bye. Have a good day. Bye. You too.